If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We just sang, it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. But it's also true, isn't it, it is enough that Jesus rose and that he rose for me. So I want to consider with you from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the hope of the resurrection. Now, I have, you'll notice in the bulletin, just a few verses, 13 through 16. But I would like to begin in verse 3 of chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we will read from verse 3. So the Apostle Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In other words, they can't see it, right? Hidden from their eyes. It's veiled. They're perishing. Why is that? Verse 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, Paul says, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, if you will go down to chapter 5, look at verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And then if you go down to verse 11, 
Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And I'll stop there. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us. Now let's pray together. And now, our gracious Father, as we bow our hearts, our heads in Your presence, we are humbled by the fact that Jesus died and was buried, and that on the third day He rose from the dead, and even now is seated, exalted, vindicated at Your right hand, and that from there He's going to come again in great power and glory. So open our eyes this morning to see that Jesus, who was dead, is alive and who lives for us. May we all know him to be ours this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things about the doctrine of resurrection that we discover in the Bible is that it essentially conveys to us two ideas. The first is the idea of hope. Uh, We have hope since Jesus is risen from the dead. That's the first idea, the idea of hope. But the resurrection or the doctrine of uh, the resurrection of Jesus also conveys to us the idea of certainty. So that we have a certainty, a certain knowledge that the Jesus who we believe died was buried is now risen from the dead and is seated at God's right hand. We, of course, have that as our hope, but we know for sure, and the reason we know for sure is because God has said it. It's the reason we know the resurrection of Jesus is true. It's also the way we know that we ourselves will experience death, burial, resurrection, and judgment to come. We know it from God's Word. The one thing we can say about the Word of God is that it is certain, that it is true, and that it is filled with hope for those who read it, for those who believe it. And so as we come this morning, I want to think a little bit with you about those ideas of hope and certainty as we find in this passage before us and as a background as we think about this doctrine of resurrection. It is true, in one sense, you could separate those words. You could separate hope from certainty. You might hope for something with uncertainty, not knowing whether it's true or not, but hoping that it might be true. But that is not how we come to the Bible or to the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus. We come with a certain hope, with a hope that is that is true, and the hope that is guaranteed. So what I'm hoping for, what you are hoping for, what you anticipate, and what you long for, is something that we call a certain hope. It is ours. It's going to happen. It's guaranteed. So when we talk about biblical hope, what we mean by that is a certain guaranteed hope. It is going to come. That's why the Bible actually even says that even when we walk by faith, it is not by sight. And in fact, it's not just by a worldly hope that we walk, but by being absolutely convinced of what the Bible, what the Scriptures reveal for us. That is exactly how the Apostle Paul thought about resurrection. 
That is precisely how he thought about Jesus who died, who was buried, and who is alive again, who is risen from the dead. For example, he, in his defense before the Jewish council in Acts chapter 23, listen to what he says in verse 6. He says that when he perceived that one part of the council were, Pharise were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, he said, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So he puts it out there for these Jews in their council who are divided, Sadducee and Pharisee, Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection, and Pharisees who believe in a resurrection, and he says, I'm a Pharisee. So he's just simply siding with the one side, dividing the other side by their unbelief, and he says, it is with respect to the hope of resurrection that I'm here on trial. When he was defending himself before Felix, in Acts chapter 24, he said, I worship the God of our fathers, <clears throat> believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men accept that there will be a resurrection of the just and of the unjust. And then, a few chapters later, in Acts chapter 26, when he stood before King Agrippa and Festus, he says, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise of God to our fathers. And then he says this, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I wonder if there's someone here this morning who thinks it's incredible for God to raise the dead. I want to assure you that that is exactly what God does and can do. In fact, what God has done in raising his son from the dead. So it's as if Paul says, now look here. These scriptures that are in his mind and on his heart that he's been referring to before all these people before whom he's on trial. He says, the, the Old Testament, it speaks of this resurrection. And that's why I have a hope in resurrection. The fathers knew it. The prophets preached it and spoke about it. The Old Testament is filled with it. This hope of resurrection. And that's why I stand on trial for my hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. You see, Paul has confidence in God's word. If God said it, he believes it. But he also says that it's because God is who God is, that God made promises, that God is faithful to his word, that God cannot lie. And if God says it, it must be true. And that's why we believe what we believe, because God said it, but because who God is, that God is the God of Scripture. So he speaks to King Agrippa, and he gets quite specific, and he says, Here I am, O king, and I'm testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And what was it that the prophets and Moses said would come to pass? That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would pro proclaim light both to our peoples and to the Gentiles. Now, the Old Testament speaks not just about resurrection. You can read about resurrection in the Old Testament, but it speaks about the resurrection 
of Jesus. In fact, in our responsive reading, in Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 13, he refers to those Old Testament passages like Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter, uh, sorry, Psalm, chapter, Psalm 2 and Psalm 16, which speak about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Jesus won't remain in the grave. He will come forth from the grave. So the Old Testament speaks not just only about resurrection, but speaks about the resurrection of Jesus. That's why Paul says, I have this hope. It's certain because God said it in the Old Testament Scriptures. And because Jesus has been raised from the dead, Paul believes that, and he trusts and prays that the people who were listening to him would also believe exactly the same. Now, isn't that what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? If you look, for example, at verse 14, he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So you see what Paul says? He says, look, I know that God raised Jesus from the dead, but I also know something else, that the God who raised Jesus is also going to raise us and bring us into the very presence of God. How does he say that? Does he, do you think that he says that when he says that statement with, with anxiety? Maybe it's true. I don't know, but I'd like it to be true, so I'm going to tell people that I think it's true. Is that how Paul speaks of these events? No, the Apostle Paul speaks with absolute certainty. He speaks with conviction. He speaks with confidence. Because he has confidence in God, and he has confidence in Christ. So he believes that just as Jesus died and experienced resurrection, so too Paul and other believers, Christians themselves, will also die, and yes, their hope is this resurrection from the dead. And so Paul thinks like the psalmist does. You see what the psalmist says in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 4. He says, I believed, and so I spoke. And that little phrase comes straight out of Psalm 116. So Paul takes Psalm 116, I believed, therefore I spoke, sucks it into, puts it into 2 Corinthians 4 and says, you see, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that's why I'm speaking about it. So this is not something that Paul believes and says nothing about. No, the fact that he believes it has an, inf an influence on his life that speaks to him, and he lives it out, and he confesses it. He tells people, I believe Jesus died. I believe Jesus was buried. I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Isn't that what he told the Athenian philosophers on Mars Hill? The moment he got to the resurrection, they began to say, whoa. But Paul has come there by way of the Old Testament Scriptures and by way of their ignorance that they didn't know these things, so he reveals these things. But they thought it was incredible. But did you know that on Mars Hill there were just a few that believed? Because the Spirit of God works when the Word of God is proclaimed. So why does Paul take this little phrase, I believe and believed and therefore I spoke, and therefore we believe and we also speak. Why does he take that from Psalm 116? I think it would be helpful if you turn back to Psalm 116 with me and I'll show you. So go back to Psalm 116. 
Now, what is Psalm 116? Well, Psalm 116 is a song. Most of the Psalms are songs. You sing them. It is a hymn of thanksgiving, and it's a song and a hymn for deliverances from death. So Psalm 116 is all about being delivered from death. So look at verse 1. He says, I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Why am I pleading? Why am I praying to the Lord? Why am I seeking the Lord? Verse 3, The snares of death, He says, encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I feel the tomb. I feel the attraction, the drawing near to death is what he is saying. And then he says, I suffered distress and anguish. Verse 4, Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Will you notice that phrase, deliver my soul? He doesn't say deliver my body. Deliver my soul, he says. Then verse 8, For you have delivered my soul from death. Verse 15, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And then look at verse 17. Here's the response to these deliverances. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and I will call on the name of the Lord. So Psalm 116 is about declaration. It is about speaking about what you have personally experienced. What did the psalmist experience? Deliverance from death. These threats that were coming upon his life. He is set free from them. He is delivered. It was the Lord who delivered him. It was the Lord who brought him back from the brink of the pangs of Sheol, as it were. God delivered him. And the result of that was, Paul says now in 2 Corinthians 4, I believe, the psalmist says, that that's what God did for me. Therefore, I declare it. Therefore, I speak it. So Paul says to the Corinthians, That's how it is with us in the resurrection. We have been delivered from condemnation, from death itself, by Jesus' death. And we have believed in that. And as a result of we have believed, therefore we speak about it. We confess it. We talk about it. So that's why Paul takes Psalm 116 as an illustrative purpose to convey why we, the Corinthians, and you and I, ought to believe and ought to speak of the deliverances of God. Now let's look at what he says about himself in 2 Corinthians. So look at verse 8 in this passage, 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way. So here's his suffering, right? But we're not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Verse 9, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always, he says, being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So it's as if Paul says, I come to the brink, to the edge of death itself, for my service for Jesus. That, and then he says, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Now why does he say that? Because he's going to go on and quote Psalm 116 as fulfilling that. I, God has delivered me. God has saved me. And therefore I believe, and therefore I speak. Now, one of the things that I like about the Apostle Paul in this marvelous chapter is what he says in verse 16. He says, 
so we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, by the way, anybody here, can you testify to the outer man wasting away? You should look in the mirror every day, you'll see it. Okay, just let a few years go by, look again, and you'll see a change, right? Our outer man, our outer self, he says, is wasting away. But that's immaterial, he says. That's not what counts. What counts is, is that uh, the inner man is being renewed day by day. So there's a change inwardly, inside, that is going on while the outside is experiencing this decay and this change, this tending to death. But the inner man is tending to life, is what he says. In fact, he puts all of the afflictions that he experiences in verses 8 and 9, look what he says about them in verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction, that's what he calls his sufferings. That's what he calls his hardships. That's what he calls his trials, his sorrows. It's just a light, momentary affliction. It's just... For a short time, but what's the real thing? It's preparing, verse 17, for us, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Well, how do you get an eternal weight of glory? Resurrection. That's how you get it. So my sufferings are doing something to me now. The outer man is wasting away, but the inner man is changing by God's grace, by God's Spirit. It's being prepared for this eternal weight of glory, which is still to come. It's marvelous, isn't it? So Paul says, I'm not giving up. I'm not giving in. Whatever my troubles may be, whatever my sufferings are, whatever my sorrows are, they are all eclipsed by the renewing of the inner man, which is being renewed day by day because they are producing for me the sufferings and eternal weight of glory for me. What do we learn from that? Well, whatever you're going through in your life, Whatever trials as a believer, whatever sufferings, whatever sorrows, whatever afflictions you may in, go through in life, Paul says that is simply God at work in your life. That is God renewing you in the inner man day by day through the light momentary afflictions. And you often hear about Christians who say, well, we shouldn't suffer. Well, how are you being renewed day by day if you shouldn't suffer? Because Paul says, my light momentary afflictions, which were heavy, by the way, compared to what you and I really suffer. Those light momentary afflictions says, are doing something in me. I am being renewed day by day in the inner man. I am being changed. I am being conformed. I need those afflictions. I need those sufferings, is what he says. They are doing something to me. Or to put it simply, God is using them to bring you, bring Paul to himself to get the eternal weight of glory. God's at work. So when I read the Apostle Paul, you know, you come to the conclusion, this is not a woe-is-me kind of person. This is not a depressive kind of individual. No, he has hope. He has hope that is saturated, suffused by joy. The joy of what Christ, who has forgiven his sins, is doing in his life day by day, even though he's suffering for Jesus, he knows that those sufferings are working in him, changing him, bringing about this renewing so that he will get to an eternal weight of glory. And the way he gets there is because Jesus lives and Paul will live in the same way. 
resurrection. You know, there is this body of death that we live with. Paul says it in verse 10, right here. But there, and yes, there are trials, and yes, there are sufferings, and yes, there are even, look what Paul says in verse 12, to the point of death. So death is at work in us, he says. But my hope is in the life of Jesus. Look at verse 10 and 11. Twice he talks about the life of Jesus. Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. I need the death of Jesus, and I need the life of Jesus. Verse 11, we who live are always being given over to death. I'm always suffering for the sake of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal bodies. Listen, your sufferings, afflictions, and trials are a manifestation of the life of Jesus in you. It's not just you are going through whatever it is. And dear congregation, some of us will go through tragic things, awful things. And yet Paul looks at whatever it is and he says, something is being used by God in that mysteriously. It's a remarkable thing. He is refining you on the inside. He is changing you. He is making you like his son in death and in life so that the life of Jesus is shown as you live out being renewed day by day your life before others. But if you are, woe is me, I don't need these sufferings, I don't need this cancer, whatever it might be, you are forgetting that it is God who is at work in you through all of those things. Why do those things come? Ultimately they come because God has ordained all things. But yes, sin has brought disease. And we are culpable of those of sin itself. So it's a thing that's working within us. Not everybody's going to die of sickness in one this way or that way. We're all going to die. There's no question about that. If you are a Christian, you know that. But your confidence is, is it not, in the one who lived, died, and lives again. The Lord Jesus Christ. And that, Paul says, is my hope. That's why I believe, Paul says. And that's why I speak. Aren't those the two essential things that a Christian has, or a person who is a Christian has, has gone through? As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, that if you confess, speak with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be what? Saved. So with the mouth, confession is made, and the heart believes. And that's exactly what Paul's saying here. I believe, I confess. I believe, I speak of the reality and the truth of what Jesus has done. You see, Paul could say, yes, Jesus died for me. I'm tied to that. My life is bound up in that. Yes, Jesus was buried in the tomb. My life is tied to that. I'm bound to that. Yes, Jesus came forth on the third day. My life is tied to that. What does he mean by those kinds of things? He means I'm united to Christ. I belong to Christ. Jesus died for me. And listen, Jesus rose again for me. That's what Paul believes. You remember how he put it to the Romans practically in Romans chapter 6 and verse 5. He says, For we, if we have been united with him, Jesus, in a death like his, if I've been united with Jesus, Paul says, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see, the Christian is united to Christ. 
Jesus died, I'm tied to that. Jesus rose again, I'm tied to that. Jesus is coming again, I'm tied to that. I'm connected to Christ, is what Paul says. So believing in the death of Jesus is not a vain thing, Paul says. Because that's not all there is. Jesus didn't just stay hanging on a cross and remain dead. Oh, there were all kinds of things that were going on at that moment from the point of view of the disciples and the women and those who were there. Jesus is dead. Jesus is hanging on a cross. And it would appear he stayed on the cross until evening when Joseph of Arimathea, as we read, went to Pilate and asked for the body and then took him down. So Jesus has been hanging on the cross, but he's been dead for a few hours. And so when the women come to the tomb on the first day of the week, what do they expect to find when they come to the tomb? They expect to find Jesus. They expect to find the body of Jesus in the tomb. That's what they have come for. They have come to anoint His body because they loved Him. They served Him. He had saved them, delivered them, given them freedom from oppression, from their sins, forgiveness. So they have come there to express their love for Him to anoint His body. But what do they find? No body. No pun intended. Jesus gone. Jesus alive. Right? Tomb is empty. And you remember how in Luke's Gospel, the angels say to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why have you come here looking for the dead? Jesus is not here because Jesus is living. Matthew says, I know, the angel says, that you seek Jesus who was crucified, but He is not here. He has risen just as He said. Wow. Just as Jesus said, I'm going to rise again. Tomb is empty, right? You, now, you know, the remarkable thing about this is that every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, presents to us the account of the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. And at the same time, every gospel tells us that there were witnesses to the death, to the burial, and to the resurrection of Jesus. The women, for example. The disciples, for example. And then, as Paul will tell the Corinthians later on, uh, many others and more than 500 at one time saw Christ alive. But let's just think a little bit about the women and the disciples. Here are they as witnesses who suddenly, just a few days later or a month later on the day of Pentecost are going to be transformed by the power of the Spirit. They become fearless witnesses, fearless preachers and proclaimers of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. There is nothing in Scripture, by the way, that contradicts any of those accounts. What you read in Matthew, read in Mark, read in Luke, read in John, nothing is contradicted by that. The interesting thing is, though, that the women who in the first century, they make up an unlikely group of witnesses for the simple fact that in the first century, the women were regarded as unreliable in testimony. But yet, what do you find Christianity hinges upon? The very witness of women. They are unreliable, the world would say. The Jews would say, the Pharisees would say, they're completely unreliable. Who would listen to them? In fact, the disciples didn't listen to them. And yet they are the ones privileged to be the first to bear witness to the fact that Jesus is alive and the tomb is empty. What more proof do you need? 
for a resurrection, that the tomb is actually empty, when women testify to it in the Scriptures. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's marvelous. And think about those dear women, right? They were at the cross. They have followed Jesus around. They have served Him, ministered to Him, provided for Him and His disciples wherever they have gone. Now, shockingly, Friday, Jesus is hanging on a cross and all their hopes have been dashed to the ground. And they're in the crowd. And they're observing Jesus dying and then dead on a cross. Some disciples are there. But they had all fled and left Jesus alone. But not the women. They are there observing. And they watch as Joseph of Arimathea, which tells you that they haven't left the cross. Then when Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man, who was a disciple of Jesus himself, comes to Pontius Pilate and asks for the body and then comes to the cross and takes down the body and then Nicodemus, the man who came to Jesus by night, joins him and they bind up the body of Jesus, don't they? And they, Nicodemus brings lots of spices and they wrap those rolls of linen that the body of Jesus is with all of these spices to eliminate bodily odor in the tomb. And then they take that body, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and they lay it in the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea has just, per just purchased so that he joins a rich man in his death, Isaiah 53 says. And the women go, and they stand there, and they watch what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus do in placing the body in the tomb. They are there for the burial. They were there at the cross. And then they decide, don't they, we have got to anoint the body of Jesus. We've got to take care of His body. It was a quick job. It was hastily done at the foot of the cross by Joseph. We will come and we will anoint Him on the first day of the week. We cannot come tomorrow because tomorrow is Saturday and it's the Sabbath and we must rest. And so that's what they do, don't they? They rest on the Sabbath. They're at home. They're grieving. They're mourning. They're crying. They're saying things to each other. What happened? How did this come about? Let's go tomorrow. And the Bible says that before the sun has even risen, they have made their way to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. They've come with a purpose. Who will roll away the stone from the tomb? Who will do that? When they get there, the stone is rolled away. How did that happen? An angel of the Lord came down. And of course there was an earthquake and the soldiers became as dead men. Those men guarding, they fainted away as it were. And the stone is rolled away. Whom are you seeking? Why have you come? To look for the living among the dead. He is not here. Come see the place where they laid him. And they go in and there they see the rumpled linen cloths just by themselves. And there is the linen headcloth that was bound on the head, around the head of Jesus, folded neatly by itself. It's as if the body of Jesus came straight through the linen cloths, and then Jesus, taking the band or the bandage off his head, by, folds it up and puts it by its place. Why does Scripture tell us these things? So that you might believe the gospel. You might believe that what happened to Jesus is true. That He didn't just die on the cross, but He was buried and rose again on the third day. I believe at that time that Mary Magdalene just took off. And she ran to tell Peter and James and John and the rest of them, 
they have taken away the body of the Lord and we do not know where they have laid him. She's gone. Because that's what she went to tell them. The body's not there. The body's not there. She, she didn't even hang around, I don't think, to listen really to what was said. And of course, the, co the consequence of that discussion was that Peter and John took off for the tomb. Meanwhile, the other women who have gone there with Mary Magdalene are leaving the tomb and they meet Jesus, the Bible says. And they worship Him. They worship Him. And He says, go tell my brethren, my disciples. Then Peter and John come to the tomb, and you remember how they ran together. And because John was the younger man, he outran Simon Peter, the older man. And he got there first, but the Bible says he didn't go in. And here comes Simon Peter, huffing and puffing behind him. He goes straight into the tomb, and he saw and believed. And John comes in, and he saw and he believed. And they go home wondering, what do these things mean? And later that day, Jesus on the road to Emmaus meets two other disciples who are walking with downcast faces. And he says, why are you sad? And they say, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem at this time who does not know what has taken place in the city? Well, what has taken place, Jesus says. How Jesus of Nazareth, the one we had hoped in, would deliver Israel. They crucified Him. They killed Him. The women even came and told us that He's risen. And we know that they never believed the women when they were told by those dear women. And they go back because Jesus, of course, in Luke 24, reveals Himself to them, doesn't He? And they go back and they say, we've seen the Lord. He has risen. And they, then the other disciples say, no, He's appeared to Simon. He is risen. And then suddenly Jesus is in their midst to those other ten disciples because Thomas is not there. And they tell Thomas, you remember, we've seen the Lord. Unless I see him, unless I put my finger in the palms of his hands and in his side, I will never believe. And one week later, they're all together, and Thomas is with them, right? John chapter 20, and Jesus comes. And what is the first thing he says, Thomas? Reach out your hand. See that it is I. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And what does Thomas do? Falls down at the feet of Jesus and says, My Lord, and my God worships Him. Because who's standing before Him? The Son of God. The exalted, the risen Christ over sin and over death, over the tomb. That's what the Gospel teaches us. All of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Every one of them. How can you come away from reading such an account where there's no contradiction? Where they all agree with each other? from their different perspectives and point of views because of their different writing skills and abilities and personalities under the inspiration of Scripture. Calling us to direct our minds and hearts to these events that Jesus is risen. Isn't that what accounts for the great change in the disciples? I mean, how do you account for Simon Peter's change on the day of Pentecost, right? They who would not believe didn't believe the women, now believe, and are out there preaching and bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus, regardless of the consequences. You know that every time the apostles preached the resurrection of Jesus, whenever they did that, they always preached other things as a consequence of the resurrection of Jesus. 
And I want to show you some of those things. So first of all, will you turn with me to Acts chapter 2? This is the day of Pentecost. I don't know if, if someone here does not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Well, go through the Gospels. Now let's go through the book of Acts and look at some of the things. So Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Here's Peter preaching. This man who was hiding. This man who denied Jesus three times. He says to the great crowd on the day of Pentecost, he says, Men of Israel, verse 22, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. How did Jesus die? By the plan of God, right? You crucified, he says, and killed him by the hands of lawless men. That man, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he quotes from the Psalms, Psalm 16, and so on, down to verse 28. Look at verse 30. David, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out the Holy Spirit that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That's Peter. Testify. Look at chapter 3 and verse 11. This is the, the, the response to the lame man who is healed, right? Which uh, Mick read for us earlier, we read together. So in uh, chapter 3, verse 12, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had deci decided to release him. But you denied the holy and the righteous one, asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. See what he says? Look at chapter 4, verse 9. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, this is chapter 4, verse 9, verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Look at chapter 5, verse 27. And when they had brought them and set them before the council, the high priest questioned them, Acts 5, 28, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Go to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 36. 
Acts 10. This is Peter speaking to Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Verse 36, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, and after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day, made him to appear, not to all the people but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name and you know, when we read together our responsive reading in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul says the same thing, that through the resurrection of Jesus comes the forgiveness of your sins, comes this forgiveness. These are the implications that are drawn from it. Now I know when I come to the resurrection of Jesus, I could say certain things, I can say certain things, in fact I do say certain things about the resurrection of Jesus. Number one, that Jesus is the Son of God and God's plan and purpose was actually accomplished. Acts 4.28, to do whatever your hand and Pilate's hand had determined and to predestined to take place. So I could say Jesus is the Son of God because of the resurrection. I do say it. He is. But look, secondly, the Scriptures, the Psalms, the Prophets, they're all proven to be true and right. And not only that, but the Apostles themselves are not the victims of some sort of ecstatic psychological experience, some vision of Jesus. No, there are many little things that prove that it really was Jesus. Do you have something to eat? Because they thought He was a spirit. They thought He was a phantom. They thought they were having an ecstatic experience. Jesus takes fish from them and He eats it in their presence so that they are convinced that He is actually standing right in front of us, alive, risen from the dead. But you see, dear congregation, here's where the resurrection of Jesus gets personal. Personal for you. Personal for me. Because it assures us, the apostles say, of... The fact that my sins can be forgiven. Listen, if Jesus is dead and never rose from the dead, your sins are not forgiven. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15? If Jesus is not risen from the dead, our preaching is vain and futile. You are still in your sins. So the big thing that comes out of the resurrection for me personally, for anybody personally, is that your sins are forgiven. That sins can be forgiven. So the resurrection proves to be the guarantee that sins are forgiven. That's what Paul said in Acts chapter 13. In fact, Peter told Cornelius, same thing in Acts chapter 10, right? To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now that's the question. That's the personal question. 
I mean, Jesus is risen from the dead. The whole doctrine of his resurrection and future resurrection completely established by the scriptures. But have you been forgiven? Because you see, you're only forgiven if you believe in the, this Jesus who died, was buried, and rose on the third day. And the Apostle Paul speaks of that even in his commission to the Gentiles in Acts 26. He says, God called me, gave me a commission to open the eyes of the Gentiles so that they might turn, he says, from darkness to life, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and have peace or a place among God or with God among those who are sanctified. That they might receive the forgiveness of their sins. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Redemption. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Resurrection secures that redemption. Proves that you and I can have sins forgiven. That's why in this passage, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul says, we've come to see the light of the glory of the gospel the glory of Christ. We've come to believe it. We've come to know it. We've come to experience, he says, my sins washed away by Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Isn't that what happened to Paul or Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus? Isn't it interesting to you that when the world wants to describe a truly changing event in the life of a person, they had a Damascus experience. Now you know what happened on, at Damascus? Saul of Tarsus was confronted by the risen Jesus. And Jesus said to him, Why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus. He sees him, risen from the dead, and receives the forgiveness of all of his sins. Oh, think of the sins of Saul of Tarsus compared to your sins and my sins. Paul says, if I can be forgiven, you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven. So it's a very personal application, isn't it? Are your sins forgiven? But let's get practical, okay? The resurrection is not only personal, but the resurrection is a very practical one. Look what Paul says in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 4. He says, my outer man is wasting away, but my inner man is being renewed day by day. Do you know why that is so? Not just because of the afflictions and that, but because Jesus, who suffered for him, also rose again from the dead for him. And I'm being renewed because Jesus lives. Or to put it another way, Paul's saying, I'm being prepared for heaven. Now I know from my Bible, from your Bible, that you can only be prepared for heaven if your sins are forgiven and washed away. Nobody gets into heaven with sins unforgiven. Sins are forgiven or not. So if you wish to be prepared for heaven, if you wish the inner man to be renewed day by day, you must know that your sins have been washed by the blood of Christ, that your sins have been forgiven. And Paul says, all of that is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory. So Paul, what do you recommend? Paul says, listen, stop looking at the things that are transient and start getting an eternal perspective. Start seeing, not with the eyes of sight, the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. I'm talking about 
eternal matters, spiritual matters. Well, dear congregation, our entire world is saturated by the physical, saturated by the visual. Social media is all about visual. You join with others whom you have no idea who they are, but calling them your friends. Seeing things with the eyes. I mean, the whole, the whole internet is about the visual, isn't it? And you, gee, Paul comes and doesn't have an internet. He doesn't have social media. He just has an empty tomb. And he has a risen Christ who has appeared to him. And he says, that's it. That's all that matters. Because that change that I've experienced is preparing for me glory. Now the question is, are you being prepared like Paul for glory? The only way that is happening is if the inner man is being renewed day by day. And why would that be taking place? Because your sins are forgiven. See, that's what Jesus came to do. That's why Paul says, the life of Jesus is at work within me. That's why he says, I don't lose heart. We do not lose heart. He says, I can live with any light momentary affliction. I can put up with any suffering because of what's being prepared for me and what I'm being changed into and to receive an eternal weight of glory. What are these light afflictions compared to what Jesus did for me? So Paul says, that's why I believe and that's why I speak because these are the true things. So here's the final thing. Like the women and like the disciples, if you are a Christian, you are a witness. You can't avoid it. You can't escape it. You can't get away from the fact that if you belong to Christ, you will be called upon somewhere, somehow, someday to make a statement, I believe the gospel. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe that He washed them away with His blood. I believe that He came to redeem me and to save me. And He secured my redemption by rising from the dead. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe and therefore I speak. Someday, we who believe will say and have to say those kinds. Yes, we are all witnesses if we believe. So the question is, do you believe? Or is it just ho-hum this morning? Doesn't matter. I came in the way I am and I'm going to go out the way I am unchanged. Guess what? You will confront Jesus one day. That's it. Or to put it another way, Jesus will confront you. Just like he did Saul of Tarsus. Are you certain you are right with God? Are you certain? You can be. You can be. Christ says, Come. I died, I was buried, I rose again. Believe, because that's your only hope. That's your only hope. Otherwise, you're just going to live through life, and you're going to experience sufferings and hardships that you will have no explanation for. And you might rant and rave against them. But sooner or later, death comes. Will you, like the psalmist, or not like the psalmist, say, the Lord delivered me from the grave, and the Lord delivered my soul from Sheol? Or will you just enter blithely into it and then be confronted by the risen Christ who judges, who comes to judge the living and the dead? No, the certainty of the Scriptures is that your sins can all be forgiven no matter how bad they are, no matter how dark they are. Your sins can be washed by the blood of Christ because He saves us. 
and He delivers by His death and by His life. So that we can all say, like Paul says here, that's why I believe and that's why I speak. May the Lord help us to be like that. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the truth and the reality of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That it had such an influence on the life of the Apostle Paul that he knew his sins which were so horrible and terrible had been forgiven by Christ and that he had been set free. And that in receiving grace and mercy he too was to go out and proclaim and be a witness for Jesus as to his life, as to his death, as to his resurrection. And then to suffer such great things for the sake of Jesus so that he might be conformed to the likeness of his Savior. That he might being renewed day by day in the inner man, be prepared to receive an eternal weight of glory. Oh, Father, help us to have the same perspective. May every one of us who is here this morning believe this gospel. Know that they are sinners forgiven and washed and that their lives are different. That their lives can be lived now for the glory of God because they have seen the grace of the gospel in the face of Christ. May we all know sins forgiven, the joy that it brings. And may we live lives that are pleasing to you. Take us, we know that you are preparing us through whatever you take us through in life to bring us to yourself in glory. So thank you that Jesus is risen from the dead and seated at your right hand. We praise you. And we worship you for these things and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.